0: For over 70 years, Oshner has been dedicated to cancer research and new cancer treatment development, bringing innovations to the fight against cancer, including more clinical trials than anywhere else in the region. I'm Dr. Jonathan Mizrahi with the Ashner Cancer Institute. One of the most common complaints I hear from my patients when I first meet them to discuss their cancer diagnosis and treatment plan is that there is a lack of reliable, available information about cancer evaluating what is or isn't a credible source of information on the internet is challenging, even for the most experienced of Googlers. We are seeking to fill that gap by providing the public with understandable, reliable information about cancer. Join me as we talk to healthcare experts at Oshner about what you need to know should you or a loved one receive a cancer diagnosis. Welcome to All In Against Cancer. Prostate cancer is the most common cancer diagnosis in males in the United States, with almost a quarter of a million men expected to be diagnosed each year. Advances in surgical and radiation techniques have improved the treatment landscape for patients with localized disease, and novel therapies have made headway in our management of those with advanced cancer. In this episode of the All In Against Cancer podcast, we talk with Oshner medical oncologist Dr. Zoe Larned and urologist Dr. Sean Collins to learn more about the diagnosis and staging of prostate cancer, what treatment options are available to patients, and how to screen and reduce the risk for developing this malignancy. So welcome, Dr. Zoe Larned and Dr. Sean Collins to the show. I I appreciate you guys taking the time to come out and chat with me about prostate cancer today. Thank you for having us. So in the way of just introducing ourselves, let's start with Dr. Larned. Do you mind just telling me a little bit about yourself, where you're from, how you ended up here at
1: Sure. I'm Zoe Larned. I'm the chair for the hematology oncology program at Ochsner. I've been at Ochsner for 18 years. I came to Ochsner straight out of fellowship. I trained at Emory followed by Duke and my husband is from the Lafayette, Louisiana area. So that's how I ended up taking a look at New Orleans and taking a look at Ochsner and been here ever since. So I really love, love where I work.
0: Awesome. And sorry about Duke's performance the other night. So can I say that?
1: <laughs> you can say it, but I will say that, uh, it is still fascinating to watch an incredible coach at play.
2: It's it's amazing the career Coach K had.
0: Great, Dr. Collins, what about you?
2: So uh, I'm a native New Orleanian. My first experience at Ochsner was back in 95. I was actually a medical student at LSU. So it's been nearly 30 years that I've been at Ochsner in some form or fashion, Uh, but uh, did medical school at LSU, as I mentioned, Uh, did residency uh, here uh, at at Ochsner, did fellowship at Columbia University, and uh, uh, was in a different position for a little while and came back to Oshner about eight years ago. I serve now as a chair of community urology, kind of managing many of the outlying urology practices. And Dr. Lauren and I, Dr. Scroggins, have a joint GU uh, multidisciplinary cancer clinic that we do every Tuesday at Benson Cancer Center.
0: Well, great. You know, I've been here a lot shorter than you guys have, but I appreciate all the community and warmth which you've welcomed me. And I enjoy being colleagues with both of you.
2: It's great having you. You. Great having
0: you. So let's start our talk We'll start real simply with what is prostate cancer and just a little bit on what is the prostate gland and what does it look like when you get a diagnosis, you know, certainly under the microscope. Dr. Larner, why don't you lead us off with that?
1: Sure. So the prostate gland is a a little gland that sits behind the male urethra and under the bladder. It um, probably supports sexual function. And with time and age, um, there's an increased risk to develop abnormal cells. The most common type of prostate cancer is something called prostate adenocarcinoma, and honestly, probably the easiest for us to treat and deal with, especially if we catch it early. There are some variants that can occur in prostate cancer, so we can have some subtypes called small cell or neuroendocrine variants that tend to be a little more aggressive and require a different treatment modality um, if caught a little bit later than a surgical option would be.
0: Right. So when we're hearing a diagnosis of prostate cancer, the vast, vast majority of the time we're talking about prostate adenocarcinoma. If you're Googling prostate cancer, that's what we're talking about.
1: The majority of the time, exactly.
0: Okay, great. And w- what about risk factors? Dr. Collins, can you talk to me about some of the known risk factors for developing prostate cancer?
2: Yeah, so it's been known for a long time that family history of prostate cancer is, is a risk factor, uh, as is uh, African-American race. The uh, family history is most important if you have one or two first-degree Relatives. so a father or brother or two brothers, for example, who had prostate cancer at a young age. It is such a common cancer that many people have it in their 70s and 80s and may not even know it. So if someone has a relative who was diagnosed in the 70s or 80s and then perhaps died of other causes and it was sort of an incidental diagnosis, that in itself doesn't raise uh, that person's risk. It's really young relatives, particularly multiple first-degree relatives. Um. African-American men, prostate cancer is more common, uh, and the outcomes are worse, um, and that's clearly a risk factor. Recently, it's been recognized that the BRCA gene, which is a breast cancer gene, increases the risk of prostate cancer in men in those families.
0: And let's talk a little bit about screening, okay? I think that's a question that's can be a little bit controversial, but I, I'm sure you have strong opinions on and uh, as do all of us sitting here uh, as, as people who treat cancer. So, Sean, since this is kind of something that comes with you more often in, in the urology setting... Talk to me about your recommendations regarding screening for prostate
2: cancer. So to give you a little background, in the 1990s, 1980s, the kind of general uh, conventional wisdom was if you catch cancer early while it's still curable, well, then that's the that, that's going to take care of everything. And it's probably not quite that simple. Um, and it may be possible to catch it too early. Many prostate cancers, fortunately, are innocuous, meaning they may not be harmful, and many people live their entire life with it and don't die of it. So we don't have to find or diagnose every prostate cancer. Our goal should be to find those that are aggressive and that can harm men. And when PSA was first, uh, 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 you know, came out in 1987, there was a rapid increase in the diagnosis of prostate cancer. PSA was part of it, and then also the transrectal ultrasound came out those two things together allowed us to diagnose something that previously was very difficult to diagnose. We saw a huge uptick in the incidence uh, of prostate cancer. And unfortunately, we probably at that time were treating a lot of men who didn't need to be treated. A lot of men were getting radiation and surgery and had the side effects of that for a disease that may not harm them. In an effort to Minimize that overdiagnosis and overtreatment. About 10 years ago, there was the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force uh, who put out some statements. Basically, uh, they gave a grade D recommendation to prostate cancer screening, which basically they were telling Medicare and Medicaid services we don't think prostate cancer screening is very worthwhile, maybe shouldn't cover it. Because of that, we started screening less. And I don't know how much time we have, but there's a a, a lot of people that think maybe we've kind of gone a little bit. The pendulum has moved a little bit too far in the other direction. But the current recommendations from NCCN, which is the National Comprehensive Cancer Network, is that, first of all, whether or not to be screened should be a decision that the man makes with his doctor. We shouldn't go screen everyone who walks through Lakeside Shopping Center, for example. And at one point that was done. If you're gonna screen somebody, the best screening is a combination of the PSA and a rectal examination. Uh, The rectal examination is important, but it shouldn't generally be used as a standalone test. The best results of screening are in men between 55 and 70 years old. And that's what we generally recommend in the population who's at average risk. If you have someone who's at elevated risk for those reasons we discussed earlier, for example, family history of prostate cancer, African American race or Bra- known to have BRCA uh, gene individually or in their family, then we usually recommend starting earlier at 40 or 45 years old. Uh, and in those cases, we generally would screen every year. If someone's normal risk, screening less frequently every two or three years is acceptable.
0: Great. I think that was a very succinct but comprehensive explanation of the history and then where we're at now with screening. So to summarize, now. Most folks are recommending, certainly between the age of 55 and 70, for an average risk person getting an annual PSA check and digital rectal exam. Is that
2: accurate? Annual if you're at somewhat higher risk. Okay. If your uh, normal risk and your PSA is normal and your exam is normal and you're not on any medications for an enlarged prostate, you're not having any issues, if you wish to be screened, then screening every two or three years sure. is acceptable by the most recent update to the NCCN guidelines. Great. See, I'm learning stuff
0: too. Okay, Doctor Larned. So, let's say someone either didn't have screening or weren't eligible yet for screening, um, and they come in with potential signs or symptoms. What are those potential signs or symptoms of prostate cancer?
1: A lot of that has to do with the extent of the disease. So, if it's if it's really limited to the prostate gland, if it gets to the point that it would be symptomatic, because of where the gland sits um, against the male urethra and the base of the bladder, you may have some urinary flow changes. For example, you may notice more frequency both in the daytime and getting up a lot at night to um, frequently urinate. Or you may notice some urgency, some real difficulty getting started with your urination, some dribbling effect where very little comes out and you feel like you have to sit or change position or keep going back to the bathroom to complete. Sometimes you can see some blood in urine. That's, I would say, a little more rare, but it would usually be kind of localized urinary symptoms that you would notice if it was large enough to become symptomatic in the prostate gland. Um, Certainly if it's significantly large in the prostate gland, it can actually cause a full urinary obstruction where you're not getting good flow at all. And those usually show up to Sean first, um, and, and he deals with that obstruction, and that's how we get the diagnosis. If it's diagnosed later, either because we haven't been doing screening, and sometimes we have patients that are older and have fallen out of screening guidelines even, if it is spread, the most common place that prostate cancer spreads is to bone. Often it's not painful for a significant period of time, but there are certain areas of bone that can be a little more obvious or painful if prostate cancer was to spread to those. So certainly the weight-bearing bones would be a concern, hips and, and upper legs. You may develop back pain. It's very rare that the disease um, is so advanced that it's causing really significant problems like broken bones um, before we know about it or in the most severe case, um, you know, kind of a compression of what we call the spinal cord, the big nerve that's running between the bones in the back. We have seen patients present like that, um, especially in the hospital setting. And the main goal is to try to manage that as quickly as possible to maintain their function and mobility. Um, And there's medications we can talk about that we use for that.
0: Right. So is it accurate to say that the majority of patients, when they're diagnosed with prostate cancer, don't have any symptoms.
1: They are completely asymptomatic. And that's really the importance, I, I think, overall of, of screening and where some of the controversy comes in now about when to stop screening, even because yeah. patients are living much longer than they had before.
2: Right. Yeah. Generally, uh, as you were saying, if someone has prostate cancer and it's localized, if they have symptoms, usually it's not from the prostate cancer. Mm-hmm. So many men have an enlarged prostate. It's very rare that it's enlarged due to... large amount of prostate cancer. Usually it's enlarged just as a function of age, what we call BPH, benign prostate hyperplasia. And there's usually islands of prostate cancer in there. And usually the prostate cancer itself is not causing those uh, obstructive symptoms unless it's really advanced. Um, Erectile dysfunction, hematuria also rarely causes that, but that is often the reason we first see a patient and that causes an evaluation and and that's why we discover it.
0: Sure. Makes sense. Moving on to how we actually make the diagnosis. So again, Sean, this is probably more in your territory. What are the different tools, techniques, images that you use to make that diagnosis?
2: So this is changing amazingly rapidly. You know, guidelines used to change every couple of years. Now they're changing every couple of months and occasionally every couple of weeks. Traditionally, it has been PSA, which is a blood test. It stands for prostate-specific antigen. It's a blood test that we mentioned earlier, and a digital rectal examination. The physician picks a gloved finger in the rectum and feels the prostate. If you have an elevated PSA or a nodule on uh, the prostate, which is a bump on the prostate, generally we would do a transrectal ultrasound and biopsy. Uh, ultrasound probe is about the size of two fingers. Uh, put that in the rectum. We use some lidocaine jelly, which is numbing jelly. Basically, feels like having a large bowel movement. It's uncomfortable, but it's usually not not painful. We do a nerve block, much like a dentist would do a nerve block before doing dental work. We do an injection through the ultrasound probe that numbs the prostate. And then we do a series of little needle passes that takes tissue from the prostate. That's the traditional way it's done. It's usually done in the office setting. It takes about 15 or 20 minutes. Uh, Recently, MRI has uh, developed a much bigger role in the diagnosis of prostate cancer. In the last several years, it had been used commonly as a second line setting, so if someone is biopsied and the biopsy was negative and you suspected it was a false negative, then a biopsy was standard. Just in the last month or so, uh, NCCN has added to the guidelines that MRI, when available, should be done before biopsy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is going to rapidly kind of change what we do. It's going to. Um, it's not available everywhere. High quality MRI is not available everywhere, so it's going to, I think, cause some uh, uh, some access issues. A cancer center like ours, it's great that we have the equipment, but you know, how are we going to access those people in those communities that don't have access to uh, to this? Is going to be a big unanswered question.
0: So that would be in a case where someone would have an elevated PSA, they would make their way to your office um, with or without a nodule, then you would. The, the recommendations are now to do an MRI before proceeding to biopsy. Is that correct?
2: Yes, and, and okay. so that is something really has changed in the last month
0: or so. Wow. Okay. And then perhaps, Doctor Larden, you can comment on this. But you know, in looking for whether the cancer has spread, what kind of images do we use to uh, assess in other parts of the body?
1: That's quickly changing as well, and um, and I will say one one advantage of of coming to an institution if you're able to do that that has a multidisciplinary specialty clinic for genital urinary cancers makes a big difference because I think you'll have the diagnostic tools and the conversations that you need to have about each individual patient. I think historically, um, it's important to get imaging of the abdomen. Used to be CAT scans of the abdomen and pelvis. Now we are frequently doing MRI of the pelvis prostate area. Um, a bone scan is very common, although we do know that at certain PSA levels, they often are negative. They're still part of the workup. If you're concerned that someone has more advanced disease or additional symptoms, we'll include a CAT scan of the chest. Um, And we may do some brain imaging as well. It's interesting, prostate cancer patients, especially on treatment, are living longer than they ever did before because of the treatment modalities. So we didn't used to ever see brain metastases, and now that can be a more common finding for us. But we very rarely see that in the beginning. And then there's the pet acumen. I mean, there are new pet modalities um, that are being used to help diagnose. And they're very helpful because they really will let us know if we have more locally advanced disease than we think at, at diagnosis.
0: So someone gets a biopsy. So again, this is probably someone who's coming through your office, uh, Dr. Collins, and and the pathologist looks at, under the microscope and says, you know, I see stuff that's concerning for cancer. Um, I think a lot of people have heard of the scoring system, something called the Gleason score. And uh, without going into too much detail because obviously there are a lot of nuances involved in that. Uh, what is that looking at, uh, for and, and, and how do people interpret that uh, Gleason score? So… Uh
2: when we do the biopsy, first of all, we, we give the pathologist a piece of tissue that's about two and a half centimeters long. It's about an inch long, and it looks like a tiny piece of angel hair pasta. And basically, they slice that longitudinally so it's super thin, like a translucent piece of an onion. They put it on a glass slide and then look at it with a microscope. In a normal prostate, you will see glands, and those are the glands that produce semen in a normal prostate. In between the glands, there will be stroma, which is basically um, connective tissue. As prostate cancer develops, those glands get smaller, they get packed together more closely, and they get more abnormal looking. The pathologist will give us a number called a Gleason score that describes basically how abnormal that looks, And that is a good predictor of how likely the prostate cancer is to spread. It's a very funny scoring system. Uh, It has changed, too, over the years. Uh, Now the way it works is that Gleason 6 is the lowest score. Gleason 10 is the highest. So Gleason 6 means it's all low-grade prostate cancer, which means it doesn't look that bad. When the pathologist looks at it under the microscope, the glands are just a little abnormal-looking. A Gleason 7 is a mixture of low-grade and high-grade, so some bad-looking cancer, some is not so bad-looking. And then Gleason 8, 9, and 10 is all high-grade. It all looks very abnormal.
0: Great. Moving on to a patient who's had a diagnosis of prostate cancer, and then we want to figure out their stage. So people think of stage 1, stage 2, stage 3, stage 4. You know, Dr. Larned, uh, you probably do a lot of staging, and probably when people make it to your clinic, they're uh, unfortunately often stage 4. but. What are the tests we do to um, determine the staging, and and what does that mean, stage one, two, three, or four?
1: Okay, sure. Well, I think, first of all, um, we look at T, which stands for tumor size, N, which stands for nodal status, and then M, which stands for metastatic disease. And that is basically how we do any staging for any tumor. For prostate cancer, you're right, most of the time when they show up to me, they've had more advanced or some high-risk features. So coming off of what Sean just said, often I'll see patients where the disease is still felt to be confined to the prostate gland, but it is considered very high risk. And it's either because of the Gleason score that's been assigned, or it's because of other features that have been seen either on the clinical exam that Sean has done, or on the imaging that's been done, suggesting, for example, local extension of the disease beyond just the prostate gland. So involving anatomic areas around it. Um, sometimes we see something called lymphovascular invasion, which is a concern for whether there can be microscopic seeding. Sometimes we see something called perineural invasion. So all of those factors are things that we will discuss and talk about in clinic, um, because often, even though it's still confined to the gland, it's more high risk and needs some additional support than just a, a local therapy like what, what Sean would offer. Um, but when I'm really seeing patients, it's because they either have nodal disease, they have advanced disease into lymph nodes um, around the prostate gland, or they have true metastatic disease, which is the most common site of metastatic spread would be bone. Um, and that can be followed by other visceral organs, liver, lung, um, but the most common is bone.
0: Okay, great. So, patient has the diagnosis. They've been staged. No distant metastatic disease is seen, so it doesn't clearly appear to be stage four. Um, So that would be a patient that would come in your office, uh, Dr. Collins, and tell me how you decide what treatment to recommend and what treatment options are available for that localized prostate cancer. Yeah.
2: So that discussion uh, in our setting is had with both radiation oncology and uh, urology, and that's the best way that 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 should be done. Excuse me. For most patients with localized disease, there are three treatment options and that is active surveillance, where you monitor the prostate cancer and you delay treatment until there appears to be progression. Surgery, which is typically done robotically, or radiation therapy, uh, and and there's a number of different forms of radiation therapy. For the vast majority of patients, all three of those are treatment options. If someone is is elderly and has a very short life expectancy, then uh, active surveillance is preferred. Um, We call that watchful waiting if we anticipate that we're not going to treat it based on so someone's age and other comorbidities. The decision between surgery and radiation is a tough one, and I always tell patients if someone tells you they know exactly why, what you should have done, you should get up and run out of their office because none of us know for sure. If we knew for sure, we wouldn't give patients both options. The way I conceptualize it and I present it to patients is that surgery uh, is certainly the most definitive thing we can do. If we can remove the prostate or remove all of the cancer, it's ha- hard to imagine how something's going to be more potentially curative than that will be. Uh, one of the advantages of surgery is that because you get the prostate out, you can get the lymph nodes out. The pathologist can look at this, and you can know for sure how much cancer there is. The stage, as Zoe referred to, you can know for sure is there cancer outside the prostate, is there cancer in the seminal vesicles, is there cancer in the lymph nodes, So that pathologic staging, we call it, gives you a lot of very important information that can impact your treatment down the line. In addition, if you do surgery up front and more treatment is necessary, generally we can give radiation after surgery without too many side effects. The downside of surgery is you have to have surgery. That's become much easier than it was in the past, but you still have to go through surgery there's the risk uh, the two most notable would be urinary incontinence which is leakage of urine and erectile dysfunction and ability to have have erections those risks are higher with surgery than they are with radiation Uh, so that's the trade-off if you do radiation you're less likely to have those side effects but you're not removing the prostate you're leaving it there and you're relying upon the radiation to kill the prostate cancer which it absolutely can and the results for localized disease are similar there appears to be a propensity towards long-term recurrences with radiation therapy. Because of that, in older men, radiation therapy is perfect. If you have someone who's 80 years old and needs to be treated, radiation has minimal risk of urinary side effects, minimal risk of ED, and should control the cancer for many years. However, if you have someone, say, in their 40s and needs to be treated, and you expect that you're going to be following this person for the next 40 or 45 years, you worry about late recurrences, and if you do have a recurrence after radiation, going back and removing the prostate then is possible, but it becomes quite complicated, so we try to avoid that situation. Because of that, we usually shy away from radiation in young men.
0: Okay. I think that was... That was more than you wanted. I'm sorry. No, that was great. That was well summarized, I think. you know Even even Dr. Scroggins would say you gave a, a fair shake well, to Dr. Scroggins radiation. taught me, so... <laughs> okay. Okay. Dr. Scroggins is our radiation oncologist. So, um, and then, you know, just to f- piggyback on, on one of the comments you made so, so robotic uh, prostatectomy is, is the typical uh, approach you're using. What's the current, you know, in today's day and age, hospital stay on average for a patient who's undergoing a robotic prostatectomy?
2: Yeah, the vast majority of people go home within 24 hours, wow. um, sometimes same day, almost always the next day. Um, so, for example, if we do a prostatectomy on a Wednesday morning, most people will go home around noon on Thursday.
0: That's pretty amazing. So it's,
2: it, it has changed. So, it, uh, it, it, But, you know, this, this is common. There are many diseases where… Sure. Both surgical and radiation treatment too. I mean this is not just in prostate cancer. We've seen these developments in uh, uh-huh. the the bar for us. It's wonderful for the patients but also as a surgeon, the expectations uh, are, are rising and rising. But it's good. That's why we do this. Good. Uh,
0: let's move on to stage four uh, prostate cancer. So uh, obviously this is a setting where uh, most patients are going to be seeing uh, medical oncologists um, – at some point during their stage four disease, uh, certainly early on um, at institutions that have a a very multidisciplinary collaborative effort. Uh, So Dr. Larned, we kind of look at big picture. We talk about prostate cancer is driven by testosterone, okay? So that factors into how we classify patients in the stage four setting. So walk me through that um, and how we use the the fuel being testosterone uh, for prostate cancer to try to starve them uh, of, of that fuel.
1: Okay, I think uh, you know the good news is for someone that treats advanced prostate cancers or metastatic disease is that it's often very treatable disease. While it's not curable, um, in general, we usually are talking about years for our patients instead of months, like we see for some other metastatic cancers. Now, saying that, we have to consider other health conditions and age and factors of the prostate cancer. But if it's standard prostate adenocarcinoma, it's usually a very treatable situation, and and we're able to get time and quality of life. and as you say, it's it's really driven by the male hormone. So male hormone testosterone is a feeder for that gland. Um, so both normal cells and abnormal cancer cells are fed by testosterone. So my first part of my job um is really to assume all of these cancers are going to respond to removal of testosterone. So they're considered hormonally sensitive cancers. If you take away the testosterone, they're likely to respond. And there are several different ways that you can do that. Um, the main place that testosterone is made is in the testicles. Um, There are two ways that you can suppress um, hormone in the testicles. One is surgical. Sometimes we do have to do what we call a surgical castration or removal of the testicles. That's usually for someone that shows up in the hospital with really painful or advanced disease, causing um, bone pain or even compression of the spinal cord. And often Dr. Collins and his team will help us in that situation. But most of the time, it's very manageable. And we start um, medications that are injectable form um, under the skin or into the muscle Um, that are designed to last about six months at a time, and they suppress testosterone medically at the testicles. The second thing that we do is we recognize that testosterone is also made in these little glands above your kidneys called the adrenal glands. Um, Those glands produce several hormones, one of which downstream is testosterone, and there are pills that can stop that gland from making testosterone. So a combination of those therapies can be used in early hormone-sensitive prostate cancers to really manage that disease. There are a couple of caveats to that. We do do some nomograms and look at some other factors. So if I have a patient that's metastatic and, for example, has several areas of disease, generally four or more, or has um, what we call organ non-bone involvement, what we call visceral disease, um, often we will consider giving upfront chemotherapy there, is, um, there are great studies that show that if you give chemotherapy for a period of, on average, six months, six treatment um, cycles, it can actually make the hormonal therapy that you use to suppress testosterone work better and for longer. So there are some caveats to where we'll introduce chemotherapy earlier, only to really make the anti-hormone therapies work better. Um, those medicines are generally well tolerated. Um, there are some side effects that you would expect from losing testosterone as a male. Those can include fatigue. I think we notice that anyhow as we get older and our hormonal levels go down, but it's a a much heavier hit on the testosterone, so you may notice some fatigue. Men will notice some muscle loss, um, and so we do really recommend certain diets and certainly exercise to maintain muscle. We may notice some hot flashes um, can be noticed with the loss of testosterone as well. Sometimes some breast tenderness and some growth. Um, And then long-term, we have to monitor bone function for osteoporosis because when you take away testosterone, it's just like women going through menopause. Those hormones really help protect the bones from bone loss. It's very easy to get around that as long as you monitor the bones and there's medications that can keep those bones strong. Um, And then we can have some earlier cardiovascular disease, so we monitor cardiovascular symptoms closely as well.
0: Okay, great. I think that was an excellent summary of the agents that we have for stage four prostate cancer. So again, the majority of these patients are not getting long-term chemotherapy. If they get chemotherapy, it's usually for a short, relatively short spurt. And these anti-hormone therapies are really what's what's carrying them through um, the majority of their disease process. Um, And then there are some targeted agents, right? So um, so patients might come in with a certain uh, either genetic predisposition, something they were born with, or something that they developed in their tumor cells that we might have a specific drug for. So Do you want to comment on any of that?
1: Right, and most of those end up being used kind of in the second line setting. So after you have, and I don't like to call it failed, after you've progressed through hormone um, medications. Bodies are smart and cancers are smarter sometimes, and they try to figure out how to become resistant to the treatments that we offer. The good news is we have other steps that we can take behind that. Um, often it's chemotherapy because that's designed to kill fast-growing cells, and there are several FDA-approved chemotherapy drugs. But we also have learned more about the genetics of tumors. Um, Sean mentioned early, earlier some of the germline mutations that we found. And while more rare, we have BRCA and Lynch syndromes, which are both familial genetic syndromes that can cause prostate cancer. It's become increasingly important to obtain family histories. Um, It is actually amazing because I think there's these assumptions that it's really the younger patients that have a lot of these mutations, but I just did a 90-year-old last week that um, had two daughters that had advanced breast cancer, and they had not been tested for BRCA, and he tested positive for BRCA, and that's how they found out theirs. But that opens up a whole line of additional therapies, including some new medications called PARP inhibitors. Um, we do do specific um, testing on tumors now to help guide therapy as well. And in the second line, there are also some non-chemotherapy agents that can be used in prostate cancer. So there's certainly a lot of work being done around targeted therapies. Um, a medication that had been used for a while was really some vaccine treatments. Um, That was really the first cancer that had that in the metastatic setting. Not having to use it as much now because we have some other modalities, but certainly a lot of people have heard about Provenge, and it was really the first success story in that arena.
0: Great. Let's move on to talk about ways we're advancing treatment of prostate cancer. So clinical trials are something that we certainly – uh, hang our hat on at, at Asher to offer kind of new and exciting ways of being able to treat patients both at early stages and late stages and, and how we're moving the field forward. So um, I guess I'll start with you, Dr. Collins. Any uh, clinical trials that you know of or excited about or or you want to mention that are more focused on the um, earlier uh, stage patients?
2: So um, we have a trial, but kind of the newest modality that is uh, is out there, at least that that we're kind of uh, getting on board with, is HIFU, which is high-intensity focused ultrasound. Um, This is basically an ultrasound, but it's uh, much more powerful than a standard ultrasound, and it's so powerful that it actually can destroy and cavitate tissue. So if we have someone with really not just localized prostate cancer, but very localized, if you will, so if you can say – you have an MRI there's one spot for example you can say look on the left side of the gland near the bladder we see a small spot of prostate cancer the rest of the prostate has been very thoroughly sampled and we know there's not cancer elsewhere then we can ablate that portion of the prostate ideally with minimal uh, urinary symptoms minimal effects uh, on, on, on erections and can be curative um, the uh, it 's relatively new at least for Oshner. it 's been out for a long time, but had it- kind of been used initially in the post-radiation setting. So if someone had a local recurrence after radiation, it was used there. Just recently, it's been moved to the first-line setting. Um, we've been doing about a year uh, at um, It's We've had good results with it. Uh, it's still quite new. Uh, so uh, when patients come to me and say, what are your long-term results? I have to say, well, this is something new. Stay which tuned. is Yeah, <laughs> stay tuned. But uh, I think it is really... Best spot for it, in my mind, is really as an alternative to active surveillance. Okay. So if you have someone with really very low-risk or low-risk prostate cancer, for whatever reason, they're not really comfortable doing surveillance, but we feel like it's just not necessary for us to do surgery or radiation, it's kind of a good in-between modality for that.
0: Great. Any trials you want to – or exciting data you want to uh, talk about, Dr. Lauren?
1: Well, I think, first of all, really just mentioning that every patient should be evaluated for clinical trial – um, certainly when patients come into clinic for both first line and and second, third line treatments for prostate cancers, we should always review what's out there. What's amazing in prostate cancer is that a lot has happened in the last decade. So we had an explosion of new drugs, um, anti-hormonal drugs, um, new chemotherapy options, um, the vaccine data that came out. There's some immunotherapy data. There's the PARP inhibitor data. Um, so things have slowed down a little bit in our clinical trial spectrum, but I would still say that we're doing a lot around individual genomics of tumor guiding how therapy should be developed from that. Um, And we're often looking at new trials and and making sure that we enroll patients on that. But most of our clinical trials right now are in the second-line settings when you failed first-line chemotherapy.
0: For our next section, uh, I'm going to be asking uh, a couple questions. So let me ask uh, Dr. Larnon, what can I do to decrease my risk of developing prostate cancer?
1: I think that's a great question. Um, I think first of all, having a primary care physician, following with your primary care physician annually, making sure that you start having these conversations about all health screening that's important to do. We certainly know that it can be life-saving for many cancers, prostate cancer being one of them, but we're also gonna throw in there cervical cancer, breast cancer, colorectal cancer, lung cancer now as well. Um, But for prostate cancer specifically, if you have a family history, of a first-degree relative, especially on the younger side having prostate cancer, but brother or dad, um, if you're African-American, you should absolutely be having prostate screening at 40. Um, Others that are more low-risk can wait till they're 50 for that to be done unless there's additional concerns. Um, I think the next thing is is really considering what a healthy lifestyle looks like. I think that's certainly important. especially for hormonally driven cancers, to be honest with you. But um, central obesity is always a concern. That's an increased risk for many cancers, including prostate cancer. Making sure that you monitor your diet in terms of sugar load and, and things like that is important. Healthy habits, including exercise, that's what maintains the weight and minimizes the central obesity. Um, And I think just like we talked about before, really just knowing your your family history, that's increasingly important across the board. It is um, very important to know your family tree, especially when it comes to cancer, because it can change our screening recommendations. And it can often change your treatment course. If we find um, genetic syndromes that run in a family, it really opens up some additional therapies that can give you a better chance to do well long-term and potentially save future family members as well.
0: For our next question, uh, Dr. Collins and we've covered some of this before but how do we treat prostate cancer at Oshner?
2: We do it well. <laughs> <laughs> yes. um, you know I, I think we had mentioned earlier uh, multidisciplinary care as Zoe alluded to. This is the new paradigm of how cancer should be treated. We, we don't treat this in a silo. It, it's a team approach. Um, not everybody needs everything we have but some people do and at least we need to lay out what all the options are. We're all inherently biased. I'm a surgeon. I'm biased towards surgery. I try not to be, but I am. So instead of just, you know, us acknowledging I'm biased, let the radiation oncologist talk to them and tell them their story and, and give them their side of the story and let them make a fair and balanced decision. And I think having the multidisciplinary clinic and everybody in one place at one time, that's what really allows us to, uh, I, I think give as fair of a presentation to the patient and help them make it as educated of a, of, of a decision as possible.
0: Uh, Dr. Lerner, this is for you. What should I ask my oncologist at my first appointment?
1: First of all, you should feel free to ask anything. <laughs> um, but I think the first thing that you want to know is what the diagnosis is and explain how we came to that diagnosis. The second thing you want to know is is what stage you are, what additional tests might be needed to help determine that. The third thing you want to know is how treatment decisions are going to be made. So back to Sean's point about not being in a silo. At a place like Ochsner, it's going to be presented in a tumor board where you have a team of medical oncologists, radiation oncologists, surgical oncologists, geneticists, dietitians, social work support, kind of all there and present to help kind of guide and make sure that nothing is forgotten in terms of doing the lab testing, the genetic testing, other tests that might need to be done. Um, You should always ask if there are clinical trials available in any setting of treatment, whether it's caught early or later. They're always looking at a less is more, especially in the local therapy. Can we do less radiation or more targeted radiation? Can we do new surgical techniques that minimize side effects? And then in my world, we're always looking for treatment that works better. Um, And when we say works better, it doesn't just mean in terms of overall survival. It also means in terms of quality of life. Are you going to be able to tolerate our treatments and live comfortably with them. And so that's a, a really important question as well. You should also ask, what do I tell my family? So that you can guide them about screening modalities and other things that need to be done. But really, any questions for your game?
0: Come with a, a notepad, pen and paper, and uh, write down your questions, I think, is uh, yeah. important advice I give my patients. For our, our final section here, I'm going to do some rapid-fire fact or fiction for both of you. So I'll start with you, uh, Sean. So Fact or fiction, my PSA is above the normal range, so I have prostate cancer. Fiction. You want to comment? I want to comment. Fact
2: or fiction? (laughs) So, and again, it depends on how much time we have. Uh, There is no one normal uh, number for PSA. PSA increases as we age. Uh, As we age, our prostate gets bigger, and because of that, our PSA rises. Um, So there's a natural increase with age. Um, the lab slips that you see will often have 4.0 as a cutoff. That's uh, somewhat arbitrary. So there's, it, it, a lot depends upon the person's age, the size of their prostate. Uh, we can see transient elevations in PSA if someone has sex and ejaculates and happens to have the blood drawn the next morning. It's debatable, but it certainly does happen. And you can have prostatitis, which is a prostate infection that sometimes doesn't have symptoms. So PSA is specific for the prostate but it's not specific for prostate cancer. Pretty much anything that affects the prostate can raise your PSA.
0: Great. So fiction it is. Uh, All right, Dr. Larnett, I was just diagnosed with stage 4 prostate cancer, so I need chemotherapy immediately. Fact or fiction?
1: That is more likely to be fiction. There is a scenario um, where you have some more high-risk disease with more than four areas of involvement where we often will offer chemotherapy first because it can make the hormonal therapy work for longer. But generally, if you've been diagnosed with a new stage four, we have androgen deprivation hormonal suppressing medication that we use first. So mostly fiction.
0: All right. Dr. Collins, we'll, we'll finish this off with you. and I think you've kind of hit this, but I'll let you address it again. If I have surgery to remove my prostate, I will lose my sexual and urinary function. Fact or fiction? Fiction. Uh,
2: that definitely is a risk. Um, typically, after surgery, uh, there's a catheter in for about a week to allow things to heal uh, where we sew the bladder and urethra back together where the prostate was. The muscles that hold urine in are invariably affected to some degree and most people have some leakage of urine. It generally resolves, uh, usually within a couple of months after surgery. If you look nationwide, All hospitals, all surgeons, you can expect your chance of having permanent incontinence being well down in the single digits. As far as erections, a lot depends upon the age, how good someone's erections are before surgery, and if we can spare the nerves on both sides. Um, We generally tell men that wherever you are, if we can spare the nerves on both sides, we hope to get you close to that, but you're not going to be any better than that. Um, so, you know, in, in the age group of men we operate on, 64 is the average age. Most 64-year-old men have some degree of erectile dysfunction and some urinary symptoms to begin with. So there's our risk, but it is fiction.
0: All right. Well, that's, I think, all for today. So I just want to say thank you to you both. and. Uh, Dr. Lauren, Dr. Collins, and I appreciate you, you talking with me. And, um, you know, I, I appreciate all you do for the, our community and our hospital. And uh, we're fortunate to have excellent clinicians like both of you.
1: Thank you for having us.
0: Yes, thank you for having us, John. So, if you or someone in your family has been diagnosed with prostate cancer, I hope this episode can give you some guidance on the diagnosis, evaluation, and treatment options available. The Ashner Prostate Cancer Treatment Team uses a collaborative, multidisciplinary approach to treatment of patients across all stages of disease with the latest surgical, radiation, and medical therapies to help patients not only survive, but thrive. We tailor our treatments to our individual patients and utilize the most up-to-date medical evidence to guide our recommendations. To schedule an appointment with a cancer specialist at Oshner, go to my.ashner.org. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode. I'm Dr. Mizrahi with the Ashner Cancer Institute. I'll see you next time on the All In Against Cancer podcast.